and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with Checo Varese, ASC, about his work on the Amazon series, Them. Um, this episode is by far one of my favorite conversations that I've had so far for this podcast. Uh, I really think you're going to enjoy it. I certainly did. Um, you know, learned a lot. I can't wait to have him back on. Uh, and if I say any more, it's just going to sound like I'm gushing over the man. But um, it was a it was a fantastic, easy discussion, uh, easy flowing. You know, um, just, just thoroughly enjoyable. So I am not going to take up any more intro time. I'm just going to let the conversation speak for itself. Oh my God, that's a horrible pun. Anyway, here is uh, here is my conversation with Chekovarese ASC. To start, what got you into cinematography? Like, what was, um, you know, what were the films that influenced you, the people that influenced you, uh, maybe books? What got me into cinematography was a complete serendipity mistake. I, I studied architecture. I was born and raised in Peru, in South America. My father was a jeweler. My mother was a designer. Um... So I do come from a background of artists, or at least a background of intellectuals. Um, I really never quite, other than going to the movies with my father, you know, watching in El Cine El Pacifico, which was this huge theater, and watching The Magnificent Seven or Planet of the Apes, the 70s version. Mm. I don't come from a background of cinematographers. Peru, it's a small country in Latin America. We have cinematographers, we have film, films, but it's very, very, and it was at that point with a military government even more seldom, you know. Um, So I decided to be an architect. I studied architecture, I went to Italy. My family is from Italy, so I had the choice, uh, the the opportunity to, to study in Italy studying a very pre- prestigious architecture school, um, came back to Peru with the arrogance of the 20s, thinking these people don't know how to build houses. I'm going to teach them how to build houses because an economical crisis 300 of the decade, uh, nobody was building anything. And a friend of mine had, um, a friend of my brother had, an older brother had a company in one day he said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. You speak several languages. And I said, yes, I speak a little bit of Spanish and English and Italian and German. I have an adventure travel company. And I'm like, adventure? Travel? So are you going to pay me to travel and just like go river rafting? And he goes, yes. Okay, great. I mean, um, so Monday I show up in the office. And uh, coincidentally, Wednesday, they get a phone call. And the guy at the other end of the bullpen says, Hey, you, the new one, do you speak English? Yes. And he answers, yes, we have a camera assistant. Like, National Geographic um, needed to do a documentary in Peru, and they were looking for someone, sort of like the fixer, local production contact, and a little bit of um, cinematography experience. And I, so I talked to the producer, and I said, I have no experience whatsoever in cinematography, but you know everything else I can help you with. And that was it. That was 1983. So that was the beginning of a long love with the 
memories of the 20th century. I think the cinematographers or the filmmakers, we are like the scribes of the 20th century. You know, we, we keep the memories through that. And one thing led to the next one, I did documentaries with them. Then I became a news cameraman. I was a war correspondent for many years, for 14 years. Mm. Um, and then the 90s was very generous to me with the music videos and MTV. Uh, some people remember what it was, you know, we, we, we used to shoot 1500 music videos a month, not me, yeah. but like in general, and that gave you a lot of opportunities for creativity and being irresponsible and being innovative and using techniques that were never used. And, um, and then after that, I lean into pilots and television and features, but basically that's my beginning. So I'm not technical. I never went to a film school, though I think um, the organized knowledge that a, that a school gives you is important. I never had that. I've, I've been giving master classes now for 15 years, but uh, I'm not part of that group. I'm part of the group that came up. I don't recommend my way up. Uh, I don't recommend my path. It's very long and contorted, but fun anyway. Yeah, I mean that's something that I that I kind of have come to terms with. As you were saying, like um, coming out of architecture school, you're like, I'm going to teach you guys how to build buildings. I think a lot of us left film school with that same confidence. You know, uh, every look. I remember specifically, uh, I had a, a friend. Uh, he's still around. I still have him. Uh, who uh, he was a VP at Viacom, and I was on the phone with him after I had moved out here, and he was like, I was like, man. I'm just ready to like get on set and, and make sure people are having fun. And he was like, do not say that to anyone. Don't, <laughs> you are yeah, not there no. to have fun. <laughs> no, like, this what is what a job. It's very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, one of my things with film school in particular in the entertainment business in, in general is that when you're at, medical school, nobody tells you, you have to be Dr. Barnard and invent the new heart transplant. Hmm. When you are in engineering school, nobody tells you, oh, you have to design the new Empire State Building. Or when you're an architect, nobody, nobody forces you. Your goal is not to become Frank Lloyd Wright. Your, your goal is to, you know, to have a decent wage, a decent living, to, to be a, 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 a and being and work and, and, and produce something for society, you know. Um, the problem with film school is like you come out of film school thinking you're going to get an Oscar, you know. Right. And guess what? There is only one Oscar a year for cinematography. One, you know. And chances are you're not going to get it. And I'm not going to get it. You know what I mean? And one has to come to terms with that. In, in the film school system, in all, all around the world, in, I have friends in Argentina, you know, oh, no, no, I'm going to revolutionize. And I'm like, Ugh. yes, you should start with that concept. But the truth is one has to be humble and honest with oneself and say, what's the best I can do today? Let mm -hmm. me be the best I can be today. It's almost like the alcoholics, you know one day at a time yeah, how yeah. can i be very good today how can this scene be better this or how can this shot be better and one at a time and not look for tomorrow you know tomorrow doesn't exist 
tomorrow mm. it's coming tomorrow and we'll figure it out then you know yeah, it's good to have ambition but also you know <laughs> i think ambition and realism are two uh two things that rarely go together and, and i think ambition is fine but the ambition should not be uh, uh you know those machines that lay uh, uh concrete like a uh, mm -hmm. roller big it, ambition should not be rolling on top of everyone you know ambition is how can i be better you know how can i make this one shot this one frame better and that is that gives you a lot of peace <laughs> i don't know if that helps a cinematographer it gives me a lot of peace I think it does. I actually, I was uh, doing a little bit of uh, research earlier and, and you, you had said something that I, that I uh, thoroughly agree with, which was that uh, I think you were telling your, your uh, child that you get, you get about 150,000 mistakes, um, you know, to make over your lifetime. And that's how you learn. And boy, I, like every day I'm, I'm someone who's got pretty decent anxiety. And a lot of that stems from remembering mistakes that I made in like college or as a kid, like, to, you know, the day, the way that someone looked at me when I said something wrong or the, you know, the way my boss reacted to when I did this, that, and the other. And, uh, it is a lot of telling yourself, you know, as a, as an artist or as a person, like, nope, that's today's lesson. That's what, <laughs> that's what I've learned today. And, and tomorrow we're going to do better. It's today's mistakes. I'm not going to make them tomorrow. There is a drawer in tomorrow there is a door in a closet tomorrow's closet has a door full of mistakes i can pick one of them but today's mistakes i did them all today and it's fine and that's great you know but anyway it's it's i coming coming from architecture actually i thought if i were to start again if I were to be 23 again and, and knowing what I know today, which is obviously impossible, um, I will still study architecture, funny enough. Well, I will still study arts, funny enough. You know, an architect builds spaces, you know. A cinematographer lights spaces. An architect understands light and window and sun exposure. And a cinematographer has to understand that yeah. we understand color, art, history, you know, you know, you, you got to understand why people build roof with two, you know, two sides like this, because it rains and the water goes that way. And in places it doesn't rain, they build up like that. Right. And, and that is super important for a cinematographer. You know, you are, first of all, we are given spaces, you know, the production designer designs the space and the director works with the actors and you're given a space, you know, you're given a kitchen and the kitchen has to have a triangle. You know, if you think about your kitchen or anybody's kitchen, the sink is here, the stove is here and the fridge is here. It's a triangle. So you go from the stove to the fridge, from the fridge to the stove, from the stove to the sink. It's a triangle. Mm. And that's how it works fine. If it's not a triangle and the stove is in the wrong place and it takes you longer to cook a scene is exactly the same a scene when you block a scene and a director blocks a scene there are some directors that are gifted with the blocking and some other directors that are not necessarily that gifted when the blocking works then the scene flows you can almost shoot it with one lens and maybe a close-up 
when the scene is and and this is generic and i'm not saying every scene is like this but when the scene is blocked in an odd way you go who that's gonna take a lot of work you know so retrospectively i think it was a good thing um to be able to understand floor plans like a production designer gives you a floor plan you look at it and you understand the spatial configuration of a floor plan Mm. so anyway for every architect you guys can become a cinematographer or every cinematographer can build a house i guess yeah well i mean like i think there's uh especially in any art there's there's um analogies to be made uh i grew up uh not wanting to become a musician, but I just was, you know, my, my dad was a drummer. So I became a drummer. I was playing guitar and stuff. And I've definitely learned a lot from musicians on how to make movies, you know, the, uh, the pacing, the, uh, contrast between, you know, loud and quiet. I was big into like hard rock and metal and stuff. And the the songs that moved me the most were always the ones that weren't just a hundred decibels the whole time. You know, maybe the guy's singing for a while, screaming in another part, you know, uh, uh, minor notes, major notes, all mixed in between, you know, not hearing the same thing too repetitively, all that can be applied to, um, filmmaking, even technically, you know, uh, uh, the way that you, for instance, if you're EQing music, you, you never really want to add EQ, you always subtract. And I think of that with, with cinematography, like you learn later in life, unfortunately, like try taking, try turning a light off. Don't add more lights. No, no, no. Turn them all off and turn one on. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, well, one of the blessings of my profession, at least the cinematography profession, if you look at the Oscars, which I'm stating again, I'm never going to (laughs) get, they all have, they all have white hair and they're all like, other than the occasional, other than the occasional, um, uh, uh, sort of weird, a young guy that gets an Oscar. This year, Eric. Eric yeah, Measures. Eric He's like yeah. 40 or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Other than Eric and Emmanuel Lubetsky, you know, and Chivo, everybody else is 65 or 70. So I have another 15 years. So I'm fine. Yeah. Um, it's it's all experience. It's all what, you know, it all, it's all what um, the 150,000 mistakes suitcase that we come to the world with, you know. Yeah. When you uh, earlier you were saying that you you were doing a lot of music videos in the in the '90s, and that was something that when I was coming up, I was like, "Oh, what I'll do is I will follow that same path. I'll get, you know, start looking for artists and start shooting music videos." And while you can do that, um, the the landscape is not the same. Uh, music videos are not a vehicle for, and well, first of all, not a vehicle for which you can get paid a lot. Um, no. which I, I feel like that was the case in the nineties, if I'm not mistaken. I, it, it, it depended, but yes, I mean, I, <clears throat> I made a living. I have a house, a wife and a Nissan Xterra 2004 that I'm very <laughs> proud of still having. It's almost becoming a vintage vehicle. So I'll keep it a few more years and I'll sell it as an old vehicle. I got the um, 06 no, Pathfinder. I'm right there with you. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't buy new cars. I, I have other things that I would like to spend my money in. Um, no, the nineties was very generous. Um, some music videos were very well paid. Some others were not as much. Um, I don't know. I haven't done one in 15 years, probably. I don't mm. know. And there are, 
out there. But also, you know, one of the things that is very interesting is nowadays you have cell phones. Right. So most people, at, at that point, we couldn't do it. You, you had to roll film. And a, and, and a roll of 10 minutes, by the time it was developed of 35 millimeters, and, and the, by the time it was, you know, telecine it with, was or transferring to some kind of digital or not digital, but analog video version of it. 10 minutes of film was, I don't know, five, six, $7,000. Right. You know, and a song is three minutes. So you have to shoot at least four times, you know, at least. So that's, you know, $20,000 just to shoot a little bit, you know? So it was a very expensive medium. Yeah. With the advent of the electronics and, and, and internet and well, internet, but the, the, the viewing concept of being able to see things on your phone, it has, first of all, democratized, democratized the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the viewership, but it also, it's like, you know, anybody can shoot anything, you know, my, my cell phone has more power than, than the, you know, Apollo 11 computer. Yeah. I mean, the whole NASA, you know, so it's very interesting and it, it has changed a lot. That That's kind of where I was headed because um, I hear that a lot. A lot of people say, oh, anyone can do it now. And it's like, well, anyone can pick up the tools and attempt it. It's not like anyone can do it. But also I wanted to ask, where do you see um, sort of working class filmmakers being able to come up now? Because from my angle, it seems like it's mostly dirt cheap corporate work or passion projects. And there's not really a huge space for people to sort of come into um, what would otherwise be uh, sort of accepted like music videos or um, commercials and stuff like that. Well, the, there are two, two sides to your question. The first side is, listen, brushes and oil mm -hmm. has been around for, I mean, brushes have been around for 10,000 years, 8,000 years. Oil painting has been around for at least, at least, I don't know, 700 years. Hmm. Last time I checked, there is one Rembrandt and one Vermeer. So the fact that the tool is available makes easier for a Rembrandt or a Vermeer or a Mozart you know, Mozart came at the time with the piano. Well, it wasn't the piano. It was called the clavichord, mm -hmm. but it was like a piano. Mozart came at the time when the piano was invented. The clavichord was invented. So he was five, and his father had the first clavichord in Vienna or whatever he was, Salzburg, I think. So at five, he was sitting in front of, and you're a musician, in front of 88 notes or whatever they are. More, I think. Um so for the first time, a kid was sitting in front of the world of music. So he could create anything he wanted. Right. Before that, you had either the little lute and the thing and the pifero and whatever it is, you know, and you were only that person, the person that played the one drum in the orchestra. When the advent of the clavichord, then all of a sudden you could write everything because you had all the notes there. But that didn't make 120,000 Mozarts. 
Yeah, it made one, it may be a Bach, it may be a Vivaldi, but it wasn't, you know. So you still have to work, you still have to be talented, you still have to be in the right place at the right time. You have to be blessed by the gods of music or the gods of filmmaking. Sure. So the fact that the acquisition methods have been eased, it doesn't make anything easier or better. It just make it more available. That's the one thing. You still have to know history, lighting. You, have, you still have to know storytelling, you know. That's one thing. And the other thing is, what are the avenues now? I think we're in a transition moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very hard to be a filmmaker in the late 80s, unless you lived in LA, New York, London, Paris, Mumbai, or or Delhi, you know, that was it. You couldn't be a filmmaker in Morocco. Ohio, yeah. <laughs> or in Ohio, or in Morocco. You couldn't be a filmmaker in, in Ohio. And then MTV came, or the music video industry found a way to sell songs through visuals and, you know, people eating live bats or mini skirts, whatever, whichever version of music videos you like. Sure. <laughs> um, so that was a transition moment. And I arrived on that moment. The late 2008, 2009 has become a little bit of what the late eighties is. So it's like, mm. There was a sax track, nobody was working, film was not around, we did videos and this and that in television. So either you're in television and or you are in no more content in MTV or anything. So I think we're in a transition moment now because of the new business model. And it, this is all about business. Believe right, me, it has nothing to do with art. It's, it's the CEO of, of some hedge fund in some Caribbean island or Davos in Switzerland that get together and decide, oh, nobody's going to shoot film anymore. Oh, nobody's going to listen to a vinyl. They're going to listen to tape. Oh, nobody's going to listen to anything other than Napster or whatever it's or iTunes. So this is not art. This is capitalism. This is money making. This is that. Right. So right now, I think with the new streamers or whatever you want to call them, the, the various Hulus, Amazons, Netflix, name it, that means everybody and their grandmother has a streamer now. I think there is an opportunity. It's a little bit of the the 90s with the music videos, you know, mm. like you can do the 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 Peacock mini series or the little shorts or the 20 minutes or the Quibi that went up and down and disappeared, but the, the other Quibi is going to appear two months from now and it's going to be called the Kibi or whatever it is. Yeah. So I think we're in a moment of transition, and that transition is a good transition. I think if you're a filmmaker, if you're a cinematographer, there's so many avenues that are at your disposition, whether you're paid or not, whether you can be paid, or whether they pay you a decent wage, that I don't know. Um, uh, I'm a firm believer that we need to organize, whether you call it unions or groups or, 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 or guilds. I think we need to be organized because the far west it's a little complex you know totally but 
but I think it's a good moment. You know, I mean, I got and 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 forgetting that 2020 existed and the pandemic and the whole thing. You know, forgetting that. I mean, the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2021, the amount of media that you can watch, it's relentless. Yeah. You know, so if you can get as a cinematographer, as a director, as a soundman, you can get a friend of yours that is going to do the next something. It's like the music videos. I yeah. think. No, that that makes total sense. The uh, I will say, like, the I, I am I am enjoying um how to how television and film have sort of merged where you can get these wonderfully produced um series such as yours uh which allow you to, i i mean i love watching movies i love living in that fantasy world and if i can do it for 12 hours you know a 12 hour mini series or whatever i'm all for it you know as long as the storytelling is yeah. good i think sometimes certain series can sometimes get <laughs> extrapolated. They're like, yeah, yeah, keep it up. Three more episodes of this. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. I agree. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, and and the, the budgets are allowing that a little bit, you know, um, I'm fortunate enough that at my point of my career, I do, series that have a, 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 a good budget or a decent budget or an okay budget. It's never enough, you know. Sure. I'm sure that when I did a chapter two, that was a hundred million dollar movie. We were complaining about the lack of uh, more time and more funds. And, and, and when I did, you know, the one million dollar indie movie, I was complaining about the lack of funds and time. So it doesn't really matter, you know, but, but if you think of it today, a mini series, traditional contemporary not complex is between six and eight millions in this country you know a two-hour movie a two-hour miniseries 16 which is a very good budget for a small movie mm. and it's an extraordinary good budget for a small movie so we have the resources and we have sometimes you don't have the time but sometimes so i think it's a it's a very good moment yeah i'm very very positive and very enthusiastic about where we're going. There's a lot of people complaining and a lot of people saying, oh, I wish I could shoot in film. Yeah. 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 That's fine. I, I personally don't have a choice. So, because I don't have a choice, if there is this, if there is no solution, there is no problem, you know, so I don't have a choice. So I'm happy to shoot in whatever I can. Totally. Th that's a, yeah. That's actually a great point because that and that is a thing that uh, allows you to place the budget in um, production design or wherever it needs to go. Because, you know, you you can hell the camera I'm shooting on. You can make a movie on this thing. C500, you know, yeah. 32 grand for two cameras for the whole budget, you know, and you get to keep them. <laughs> yeah. And you get to keep them and then you rent them out for the next production or you donate it to the film school or whatever. Yeah. I just shot something in, in Dopesick. And this is not a commercial about that camera, but I just shot something. I'm using Venice, the Sony Venice. This, love the know, Venice. It so. comes up all the time. And I love the Venice, a great camera. And they came up with a thing called the FX3, which is a little, but it looks yeah, like. the DSLR like a, thing. A DSLR. It's just an A7 in a rugged body. That's all it is. <laughs> it's, it's, an a, it's a bigger A7. You yeah. know? Uh, I shot a whole scene with it. 
and it matches perfectly the the Sony Venice. I mean, if you ask my DIT, he would cringe on the work perfectly, you know. Sure. But it matches good enough for that one scene in that particular lighting, blah blah blah, and in that setup and the, the confined spaces inside a car. It was a perfect tool. And that's a camera that is by the time you finish buying everything is like eight thousand dollars. Yeah. Buy two and do a movie. I, I literally like I'll get emails from younger filmmakers who are like, hey, I got asked about this camera. Is the is the C five hundred still good in twenty twenty one? And I was like, it came out last year. What are you talking about? Second of all, the the AF one hundred from two thousand seven is still good. What do you like <laughs> get it together? It's it's when they ask me young filmmakers the, the problem is the same you know you you have access to the internet you have access to everything and then i have a nissan xterra from 2004 and my nissan xterra takes me from point a to point b that's it you know they get decent gas yeah. mileage too you can carry a bunch of stuff in the back exactly and i don't have a bluetooth well i bought a radio with a bluetooth and it's a hanging thing there it's not perfect but it's fine it's not let me bore you with an analogy. I, I believe Dude, filmmakers... Dude, I only learn in analogies, please. Okay. Uh, filmmakers, I think cinematographers, we are like chefs. We all go to the same... You're in LA, no? Yeah. Or we all go to the same Whole Foods or Ralph's supermarket. We all buy tomatoes. We all buy this and that and the other. We come all home or to the restaurant... And depending on who you are and what's inside you is what you cook. So you can do this fantastic plate or you can do this uneatable thing with the same tomatoes. It's not about the ingredient. It's about who you are and what you do with the ingredients. You know, if you go to a chef, it's because he is an artisan. He's an artist of what he does. And cinematographers are the same. It. The tool doesn't matter, you know, as far as you can embrace its positive sides and embrace its negative sides. That FS, whatever, three that I was shooting the other day, my assistant said, oh, let's get the adapter for the lenses and let's put the focal. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. If we're going to do that, give me the Venice. I just need a little camera, a point and shoot to do this scene because it's an action thing and this and that and the other. I don't want anything. You want a monitor? I said, no, it has a monitor. Don't put more weight on it. Why? And the problem is we try to make everything look like a Rolls Royce. And it doesn't need to be a Rolls Royce. I need a Volkswagen buggy to take me, you know, because that's what I need. And you won't overheat in the sun. And so when they say about that, about the camera that you're using, None of us should become a pixel counter. We shouldn't count pixels. That's for engineers. We should count stories. The, yeah. I mean, that's that's my theory has been that, uh, you know, it's it's very easy, especially, you know, like you're saying with the pandemic and everyone's just sitting there contemplating their next move, you know, like, oh, when I'm at, when I'm back out, I'm going to be able to work on X, Y, Z. So people, um, I think, over obsess with the equipment, thinking that the equipment will get them to the next step. And I think that obsession comes from the fact that they don't have a story. Cause I think if you had a story burning through the front of your skull, you would just grab the first camera that was available to you and start shooting because 
you know, granted, you know, you could say like, oh, people won't take me seriously if it shot on mini DV. Maybe 28 Days Later was shot on mini DV. That's still a great film. <laughs> you know? No, and, and <clears throat> yeah, I think we can blame the, the we can blame the, the, the viewer, but also we can blame also the the mercantilism of things. You know? Absolutely. I mean, you, you don't need to come up with a camera every three weeks, you know. <laughs> which is but, happening right now. Which is happening right now. But if you want to sell cameras, then you need to come up with a better camera every three weeks. I mean, it's a... It's a, it's a and now I'm going to make a lot of enemies. But it's the television, you know, is it? Oh, we should, everything should be 4K. Uh, okay, explain me why. Oh, well, because it's, first of all, the, the first explanation was, it's because it's a better resolution. And like, no, theaters were 2K for decades, you know, and it was enough resolution and you don't need to. So now we invented this myth that it's better for, for future content. Uh, future proofing, oh, that's the big one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the big one now. Why? Because, you know, when you go to Best Buy or another store and you sit in front of the plethora of televisions, imagine a television that says this is a better quality, beautiful image. You can reproduce the colors and the skin tones better. And there's a long letter and it's a long list of things. Or there is another one with a big gold letter this size that says 4K. Right. Wow, it, I have to get that one. It's gold, it's four, it's K. I don't even know what K means, but it's four instead of two, you know, and it has a K. K comes from like uh, kilos, and kilos are very, very heavy, and, sure. and it's gold, you know? Yeah, they make it the price is right uh, label. Yeah, exactly. So, unfortunately, we're, we're chasing the wrong K. We, we should be chasing the quality of the image, the look, and et cetera. And we're chasing the, the K because somebody had a lot of televisions in a storage room that they needed to sell. Yeah, I, that actually does bring up a, a, a good point, though. Have you um, worked in HDR yet? Have you been shooting to master for HDR? Well, yes and no. Hmm. I have in every show I've done in the last three years has been the HDR or a version of HDR. I don't do anything different. So sure. I don't change my style. You have to be a little more careful with the highlights. Let's say, sorry for your viewers, <laughs> that window in HDR will be blown out and irrecuperable. Right. Or even worse, ah, don't worry, I won't see the camera truck that is parked out there. And actually in HDR, you see the camera truck. So there is a little bit more of thought given to the process, but it doesn't affect, it. I don't know. They, they could decide to make it HDR or not. I, I, I am right. part of the process and I am part of the HDR pass. It usually done at night in a vault somewhere in a basement by a guy with the elbows and I have nothing to do with it. Yeah. The, uh, the reason I'm asking is um, I, was, I was looking up some stuff that Eric Messerschmitt was talking about, and he was saying that he has an HDR monitor on set, 
and he'll use that to whether or not he's mastering SDR or HDR, he'll use that um, as his exposure tool because he knows if he's looking at the HDR monitor, it's going to look exactly like it would in the grade. Whereas, expo- you know, I'm I'm still meter guy. I still like meters, but that's because I'm a dork. <laughs> Eric is a very it's an artist and a very savvy artist. So I take his word for that. I yeah. try to get the best monitor I can, but most of the time I I like to operate. It's best job. Yeah, myself. Uh, so most of the time, what I do it's I very draconianly or 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 fascistly. I make all the viewfinders of all the cameras one, two, three, well, A and B and C cameras look the same because I can jump from the A camera to the B camera, look through the finder and decide in my head, what is it before even it gets to the DIT because the DIT at the end of the day is a pre-grading or a pre-color correction. So you can tweak in things and you can trick yourself, you know, for the most, for, for, for our colleagues that are watching, I mean, how many times we have been in a set and the DIT, makes it darker and the gaffer puts more light and the DIT makes it darker and the gaffer puts more light. At 20 minutes later, you're burning the place and the curtains are melting and the actors are sweating. And I have to say, what happened? Oh, well, I thought it was too bright and make it darker. And the gaffer goes, well, I thought it was too dark, so I made it brighter. So everybody at the end, it's at ND 15, 1.5. And you go, okay, everybody stop. <laughs> Give me just the basic LUT and it looks like CNN and I'm like, okay, let's start again. Take right. that 20k away, take this lot away. Let's start from the basics. So it's very, it, it has become very complex, and I understand why Eric says that. I haven't found myself with the need of that, hmm. and it's interesting, but it doesn't mean I, I don't like it. I just had, haven't found myself needing that. Totally. Yeah. Like for, for me, obviously I'm not in HDR land. I'm still squarely in SDR land. And and I've just found like, cause I think coming up on, you know, 16 millimeter and then into the cameras that had very limited dynamic range, I was just like, I'm going to put that dude's face at key. Everything else is just going to land where it lands and I can't do anything about it. So nowadays everything kind of still legible, but well, one has to be careful because all these cameras now and and, 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 and the guy that sells the 4K, uh, has a, 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 every camera now is 14 stops of, uh, what do they call it? Dynamic 14, range. Yeah, 14 stops of dynamic range. And you go, okay, great. So you're telling me it's 14 stops? Perfect. So let's take the guy or the girl and let's put her at noon in Santa Fe outside (laughs) and then let's take her, her mom or his mom inside the house with the doors open, but the windows shut and she's 14 stops under. So you're telling me that both can look great. Oh, well, no, it's so no, well, you know, you still have, so it's all BS at the end of the day, the same rule of five or six, Rule of thumbs, you know, three under, two over, maybe, okay, four under, three over, but that's yeah. it. So within your 14, choose five. This five, this five, or that five? That's it. 
that yeah. was a yeah they they taught us six that's actually something that i don't think it for for the the younger or the the less experienced folks listening uh a half a stop a third of a stop matters of course like of i course. i think i think it's too easy to get lost in this idea of like you're saying dynamic range or just like i'm gonna throw this thing open at one eight chuck a bunch of nd on there everything's gonna look great and it's like literally <laughs> If you don't know where the sweet spot of your sensor is and you're a half a stop over, it'll even when you correct it, it's going to look different. It won't look the way you want. Or Get your, your ratios lenses. dialed. Or, or your lenses. The lenses, I mean, let's take any lens. There are lenses that are fantastic wide open. There are lenses that cannot go wide open because they fall apart. Mm. You know, just to give you an example, the engineers zooms, they're perfect at two eight, you know, four. Um, the Vantage or the Hawks, the Hawks are great at two eight at four. You take a Hawk, open it up. It's a great look, but it's different. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. Uh, you take the Zeiss Supremes or any Zeiss. They're great at one nine. They're great at two, two five. You know, if you shoot in a five six, you lose the qualities, and it's a great lens, but it's a different lens. So you still have to know how much salt you have to add to the soup, because if yeah. not, you know, it's like too much salt is too much salt, too little salt. It doesn't taste like anything, and there you go. Well, and I think like you were saying in the example of like the bright midday sun in the in the dark room, like even if you did have twenty stops of dynamic range and you're only shooting a close up. If your ratio is goofy, it's not just it's goofy. You know, it's going to look goofy. It's not. It's not necessarily recoverable, and but you can't fix contrast like that in post necessarily. No, no. you can do it frame by frame, and it's going to be really expensive. And yeah, yeah, but it also it's you know framing. You know, your frame beautiful between two surfboards or two. Uh, uh, Snowboards, yeah, again, yeah. Again, snowboards, snowboards and, and, a, and a painting, yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're, and that's a framing. You know, you can frame yourself like this, and it will be ugly, or you yeah. can self <laughs> like this, and it's a statement. No, this poor guy, it's alone in his house, and the devil is gonna come from that window and come and eat him alive. Framing, it's still the, it's still the grammar of the language. You know, yeah. framing is still the grammar, the dots, the commas, the the spaces, and and color and, and, and contrast is still, you know, the 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 whether it's a novel or a poem or an epigram, you know. Uh, yeah, you were saying earlier that you you got started sort of in documentary. Is there any skills that you learned in documentary that you still carry forward through your scripted work? All of it, all of it. First of all, you have to be a fly in the wall. Second, you have to try and understand where the natural light comes from, you know. Um, it, it's, yeah, I walked into a, a location, an allocation scout, and I know, and my first question in my head is, where is the sun gonna go, you know? And even if I have a hundred million dollars to put, you know, a silk on top of the window, I want to know where the sun goes. When I go to a set that was built, my first question is, okay, so what faces south? 
or north in the southern hemisphere? Where are we? Oh, this is supposed to be Switzerland, Davos. Hmm, great. So the sun is down there and it coming to the window, yeah? Oh, yeah. So that skill comes from documentary. And then I can decide whether we have sun or no sun or whatever. Right. Because now I have the tools and, 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 and the budgets to do it. But yes. And the other thing is, what you learn in documentaries is that the only important thing that matters is the story. You know, if it's a gripping story, if it's a, it, it doesn't matter. You just watch it. You know? yeah. And also because in documentaries, you are your own editor in your head. It helped me a lot understanding what shots I miss, you know, in a documentary, you have to show the little hut where the lady was standing in front and the other one was standing in the room, the one we talked about it. So you have to shoot it, you know, because people need to know where they are. That, that and then you have up, to go inside and... Yeah, sorry. Oh, well, I was going to say that brings up an excellent point because uh, on the flip side of that coin, I'm noticing now that the, the role of the DP is ever expanding, where now you kind of have to be a little bit of a colorist. You have to be a little bit of an editor. You have to... Um, what, what What are you seeing sort of in the more professional realm that the DP is now having to absorb as a skill that wasn't necessarily the case maybe 10, 20 years ago. If you go to any DP, successful DP, anywhere in the world, and in 1985, would have asked him, okay, what is the acidity of the developer bath of photochem and the temperature of the cleaning solution at the Lux, what is the difference between them? They will look at you and say, give them a call. I have no idea. I don't care. It's not my problem. If you ask me today, how many pixels are in this camera versus that camera and how many Ks and how many this and how many that, I sort of have to know. Yeah. And it's like knowing the temperature of the developer in PhotoCam. By the way, PhotoCam was a lab that most of the kids <laughs> probably don't even know it existed. Yeah, but it's fascinating. And I don't take pride of knowing and I don't take pride of not knowing. I'm very honest. I said, I don't know. Hmm. Um, but you have become, you have become the shooter, the PA that used to take it to the lab, the driver that pick up you and the colorist, you know, you have become all of those things. It's a burden, but I think it's a it's, it's the result of the 21st century. So there is it's the same concept. There's nothing I can do. Somebody decided that that's how we should do it. And here, here I am, here I am, you know, looking at, at log C versus rec seven or nine versus things. I had no idea they existed five years ago. Right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been interesting to watch, like, uh, you know, again, coming out from film school right around the time that all these technologies really took off. Like when I uh, graduated, the Alexa had just come out, like, like literally. And uh, before that, it was, you know, mini DV or film. And so keeping up while oh, just ha yeah. just having learned the basics and then new things kept coming out over and over. And we were like, OK, OK, and just kept kept chugging along. And now it's like second nature. But. It's overwhelming also because, I mean, 
in the terms of camera, it's overwhelming. In terms of lenses, it's even more overwhelming. Now, everybody can design lenses. Guess why? Because computer power has become more available. So you can design something that it took 20 computers and seven engineers for 10 years. Now you can do it in five minutes with the knowledge, obviously. You know? right. um, but also, okay, should I use this stabilized head or that stabilized head or the running versus the thing in it? Da, da, da. I'm like, <laughs> thank god i have thank god i have friends all over the place and they send me emails saying oh have you tried this i'm like no but i should try it it's it just impossible to keep up with yeah um so kind of moving along uh talk to me about how you approached the look of them versus something like i saw you were a b camera for um pacific rim did you have a lot of input there or were you just kind of working it, it's no, it's called B camera. It actually was the other. I was the cinematographer in the other unit. So it's like there was no such a thing as a second unit uh, because there was no second unit director. And it, to be called a second unit, you have to have a second unit director, a second unit AD, and etc. So it was called B camera. Guillermo del Toro needed 150 days to shoot the movie or want it or need it. or And they only had a hundred so yeah. they created this 50 day second unit that we were shooting in the mornings and he was shooting in the afternoons he was bouncing back and forth so no i had a lot of input under guillermo navarro which was the main director of photography but yes um no them covenant it's a very particular them it's covenant is the first episode but them it's a very particular enterprise um the the showrunner writer creator um, little Marvin said to me when, after he hired me, but said to me, this is a drama with a patina of horror that is given by, by like creatures that live underneath the skin of these characters. But it also, it's, it's, it's a drama about racial disparity and, and racism in America. And it's a story that it's a classic 1950s movies shot through the language of a 1970s, uh, you know, aesthetic, aesthetic with the tricks of the music videos and the technology of 2020. I'm like, really? Oh, wow. Okay. So we, we, we tried to do that. I tried to do that. It's a very classic framing with the the you know the french connection zooms and kinetic drama or or tilting or dodging mm -hmm. um we're taking the lens out of the saddle the music videos and the swing and tilt. oh the and lens the, whacking yeah <laughs> the lens whacking and uh and uh i don't know and whatever so it was that that's a really interesting because, you know, these days everyone is uh, fiendishly obsessing over the, the quote unquote film look. Um, and I and I don't think that actually has a lot to do with the camera. I think it has a lot more to do with, uh, you know, uh, uh, production design your light and, meter. and, and, and your light, light meter and your light meter. Uh, where would you. So when you're saying the it's the conventions of 50s films. But the aesthetic of the '70s, where where was that '70s? Because I, I 
love the late seventies, one of the best times in cinema ever. Um, what, in what, uh, references were you drawing from to get that aesthetic? The conjuring, the, the, the classic, you know, horror movies, uh, the, the, the low angles of all the president's men and, 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 and the three days of the condor and, and, and the use of zooms, like zooming of, yeah. of the French connection, um, with a more radical framing, you know, of, of the music video. So it's like in, in, in the two, three, five, the loneliness that, a, that a white landscape, uh, a, a white backdrop, not landscape, a white backdrop gives to a lonely character. You know, it's like you, as I said before, you can do this and that, and, and I'm a lonely character. In, the in old room, Mr. Robot the treatment. Exactly. You know, it's like, I'm like here. It, I'm sadder than I was a minute ago here, you know, and that's how we treated that, that, that scene. Yeah. Cause the, uh, there's certain, uh, scenes in the, in the show that are very, um, well disturbing, but like kind of have, um, sci-fi fantasy elements. I just got done watching Hellboy two and, uh, going back to the idea of, of budget, yeah. you know, I was watching, there's a two and a half hour making of documentary on the Hellboy two DVD. And uh, which another point for physical media and the whole time uh, Guillermo is talking about, I just wish we had enough budget. I'm like this dude, this looks amazing for having yeah. no budget. Um, but it's kind of got that, the similar uh, uh, polish to it. Is that kind of this? I guess sci-fi is not the right word, but um, I think polish. it's more, it's more, it started with an homage to the American dream. Mm. You know, it's the American dream. You move to Compton or whatever. You move to suburbia and everything is clean and the grass is perfect and the flowers are color coordinated with the walls. And so it has to have that polished. To break the suspension of disbelief or to break the, to break the dream, you have to make it perfect. So then you can break it. Mm. You know, that was sort of the attitude. Um, and it works for this particular series, you know, this African-American family that escapes the Jim Crow laws, hoping for a new life in sunny California and liberal California, and they end up in Compton, which is the most rich, was and is probably, I don't know, I'm not from here, but it, it was racially charged. Yeah. Um, and it's all, it's all the same problem, you know, it's like they sold them houses with an impossible uh, an impossible mortgage. So five years later, they couldn't pay, so they could recuperate the house and sell it. Now, to they started with the the downtown workers. They went to the Jewish coming from from Europe, escaping the Nazism or escaping even before the pogroms in Russia. Mm -hmm. And then they sold it to the African Americans coming from the south. And when the African Americans lost their houses, they sold it to the Latinos coming from Mexico. When the Latinos sold the houses, they're selling it to you and me. Uh, because they're gentrified. So basically that one house got foreclosed and sold in the last hundred years, 15 times on yeah. purpose by design. Is there a, uh, was there sort of a, a mandate or like a, a, a look Bible when you were making this thing? Or was it very like every script gave a new, no, uh, approach? it was, a we, we, we started with a, with the 1950s through the eyes of the seventies. We started yeah. with that. 
Um, and we started with a very contained color palette. There was a, there was a mandate, not a mandate, but it was a, there was a mandate of avoiding red. Mm. So red would be only part of blood or part of something. So it, it only appears when the little girl goes towards the window, there is a red curtain. And so avoiding red was not a mandate, but it was a, a, an aesthetical choice. Um, and then the rigidity of the camera has to do with the rigidity of uh, Compton and the, and the white neighbors, the white neighborhood, you know, that is very, it's very rigid and very aesthetically stoic, you know. And then you go to the, the, there is a scene in episode three when she goes to her family and her friends that are all in Watts, I think it is in a yeah. neighborhood. And uh, they all end up in Watts drinking and smoking and dancing. And, and, and it's more like feels a little bit Mardi Gras or it feels a little bit south, you know. And then the camera is freer and the camera is handheld. And then they, we didn't rehearse any of, of, of the moves. And it was more like a, a dance and more organic and down to earth. And then we go back to Compton and it's all rigid. So that kind of language was established and was discussed. Mm. Uh, what was your sort of more technically when you're approaching lighting any of these scenes? Um, was any was any of it on set or was it all location work? Most the the houses are set built. Yeah, all the houses, and then we build the exterior of the house on on a street on a set. Sure, um, like a back street kind of thing. And then we went to several locations. So I would say a combination, probably 30% set, 30% back lot, and 30% location. Um, and, and, and when you start discussing light, one of the things is, where am I in the story? Is the next morning? Is it the night? Um, are the characters happy? Is this a good moment or a bad moment? So, And that's where you design with... We were two directors of photography, myself and Javier Grovet. Um, so we will discuss with Javier, what did you do there? Because I'm cutting from there and supposedly in the story, they are, is the next morning. Oh yeah, yeah, we did this. And I think it worked because it blah, blah, blah. So, so you, you try to follow the arc of the story, hoping that then the editor doesn't mix it up. Sure. And then you're like, wow. Have you gone, uh, all led panel, everything like pretty much everyone else or what's your, what's your fixture situation these days? Uh, we had a lot of, well, first of all, LED is LED and it's here to stay and it's blah, blah, blah. So yeah, <laughs> LED, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, nothing replaces a big HMI or a big tungsten unit. Right. You know, I'm a little bit of a combination because I think sometimes I bounce lights and, the, and LEDs are not the best things to bounce. Um, I would say 50-50. 40. The LED is here to stay. The, the risk with the LED is that it's not the panacea to every problem in your life. Right. You know? um, there are problems that require an HMI. There are problems that require an LED. And I like them, I, I, especially, especially when it comes to very soft, bright, uh, large, soft sources. You know, The small, tiny LED has its uses, but 
you know, a sky panel 360 to a window with a little diffusion. It's fantastic. You know? yeah. So they're heavy, they're expensive, and they're neurotic and meticulous about their own thing. So if it's too humid, they don't turn on. If it's <laughs> too hot, they don't turn on. They're a little neurotic, but yeah. The big one that uh, I think caught a lot of people by surprise is they were trying to sell everyone on the idea of like, oh, LEDs, you'll never have to carry a gel package again. And it's like, but colors look totally different under LED than they do with a gel. No, and also not a, not every LED goes all over the place. And, um, and you better have a, a very good dimmer board up because if it's five degrees off, on a hundred LED, you'll see it, you know, and these cameras will see it. There is still a, a, a learning curve, you know, there is still there. I mean, LEDs have been around for what? Massively for three years, four years, yeah, five years. So this is the infancy of it, maybe 10 years, but it's the infancy of it. You know, it's just, well, 10 years ago, it was just the daylight balanced ones with that nasty green spike in the middle. Yes. Or magenta. So, yeah. So maybe five years. So you and I had, should have a conversation about LEDs in you know, five more years. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's, it's, it's like, you know, you said the Alexa came out, the D21 was a great camera. I was like, oh my God, that's a prehistoric. And it's what, 2010, 2000 and no. Yeah, 2010, yeah, something like that. Eight. Yeah. That's like, my car is older than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything uh, that I'm starting to ask this now? Cause when I've been talking to people, they they're already on the next gig. Was there anything that you uh, maybe learned on them that you've carried over into your current show? Well, it was the first show I did with the latest incarnation of the Sony Venice. Mm. Um, so I did carry that with me, carry the, I like the Venice because it 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 it's a camera that is happy in the darkness. It's a it's a camera that is happy in the contrast. Um, I like the NDs and, and and the ease of use of the NDs, and the results obviously are fantastic. But I I'm I'm very agnostic about cameras. My next project will be with the camera that fits the next project better. So I, I don't have a, but to answer your question, yes, I carried the Sony Venice with it. I, I meant more so like any, anything that's like knowledge wise that you learned that you were a little, little surprised. Oh, I don't, you know, I, I assume on any, you always learn everything new. I, I've learned something yesterday. So sure. yes, I mean, I cannot be pointed, I think. I think I cannot be pointed, but I, yes, I, I did learn lots of things. Um, it's a tough question to <laughs> tell I don't me something know. you learned, I, what, in yeah. four months? Well, well <laughs> every day? I think, I think I learned that production design and wardrobe are super important. Yeah. And I, I relearn it and I relearn it every day, but in that, job in particular, the production design did such a fantastic job and the wardrobe did such a fantastic job that it's a reminder of how key, especially in a highly stylized show, you know, yeah. if you are doing 
if you're doing a contemporary cop show in the street, then it's a little bit different. But in a show that is highly stylized, how important is to have collaborators that are in love with the process and that have a vision, you know, that that is very important. Were you, um, speaking of collaboration, I know we, we've got to let you go here, but uh, speaking of collaboration, do you have a, a gaffer that you work with all the time? I, I'm change? working with, with, with the gaffer that I worked for many movies, David Lee and my key grip, Rick Stribling. They're both with me in this project. Um, David wasn't available, so he was in another project. So in that project, I worked with Nikki Cat, another collaborator and fantastic you try to surround yourself with people that know more than you. So they avoid the, they are the one that uh, allow me to have 150,000 mistakes, you know? Sure. Um, and you let them, you let them fly or not. And then eventually you are the one that says, okay, no, you don't fly that much or I need you to fly more, you know? So eventually at the end of the day, all the decisions land on me. But it's it's a collaborative process. It's not a it's not a vertical process. It's a horizontal relationship. Yeah. Um, well, wrapping it up, I uh, I ask everyone the same two questions. Uh, first one is, um, can you point to one life change or tool or uh, mantra or whatever it may be uh, that stands out to you that made you a better cinematographer? A life change event that made me a medicine cinematographer is when Patricia, my fiance or girlfriend at that point, now wife, decided to go study film. So, but she didn't study cinematography, she studied direct writing and directing. In the years I spent around her, when she was in school, they were fantastic years for me because I started reading the books uh, a director read. And I don't want to be a director. Yeah. I have no expectations of that. And I know how hard they work and I don't know how to do what they do. But to me, being around the knowledge base of how they design a shot or talk to actors and the story of it made me a better cinematographer, for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's 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 a big one. Definitely like for me reading, but, you know, making movies by Sidney Lumet or... Um... Uh, that's just the first one off the top of my head. There's a couple of books there, but, uh, reading director's commentaries yeah. in movies. Uh, exactly. Goodness. Exactly. Exactly. Um, or the teacher so that says, you know, it's, it's what, whose scene is this? And your answer is, Oh, the scene of the guy coming to the door. And like, no, 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 it's not the guy coming from the door. He has more dialogue, but the scene is about this woman that is sitting in the room alone, afraid of the guy that comes from the door. So it's her scene, not yeah. his scene. That recognizing that it's very interesting. It's fascinating, actually. Totally. Uh, second question, uh, aside from pointing everyone to go watch them on, uh, on Amazon. Um, and I, I know that you're not, uh, same as me. I'm not really a horror person. So it was definitely, Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I was like, Oh, I gotta watch this for research. Oh shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turn on the lights. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I got, I got about, I got through the first episode. I was like, I got it. I got it. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. It, but it's, it's very, very good. Um, but, uh, is there, is there anything, maybe any personal projects, anything else that you'd like to promote? Uh, 
One of my favorite movies is a little movie I did with Patricia, my wife. It's called Under the Same Moon. We did it 15 years ago. Mm. And uh, it won Sundance. And, and it was a movie that I think it changed the perception of immigration a little bit. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, and 15 years later, or whatever, not, not 15, 13 years later, it's as current as it is. So it's one of my favorite movies. You'll be the first person to promote uh, a previous work. Every, everyone else is like, follow me on Instagram or whatever. No. I, That's yeah. cool, though. That, now I got to check that. I love I love getting one thing that I've loved about uh, doing all these interviews is like I'm, I'm the free knowledge, first of all, but also all the recommendations, books, movies, uh, stuff yeah. that I wouldn't have known about no, otherwise. That was a movie that changed how it first of all, it became the movie of every high school. Funny enough. Mm. Yeah, so it's 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 an interesting movie, a very nice movie. I will have to and check it has it out. its flaws, and it, and it it's not perfect. And if sure. I would do it again, I would do everything different. But yeah, in the future, I don't know. You call me, and I'll talk to you about the dope sick thing I'm doing now in six months. It will oh, be an I, honor. I'm telling you, th- this is probably one of the most effortless uh, conversations I've had in the past twenty some odd episodes. So. Uh, it's it's been a it's been an absolute pleasure. So we'll definitely have you back on. Thank you so much. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the Ethidar Matbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com/slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always. Thanks for listening.